Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's summer and the height of the boating season in Connecticut. So who's looking out for yours and other water users' safety? We're on the front lines with the Joint Waterford and East Line Police Marine Patrol Unit. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. As the summer weather heats up, many are heading to the water to cool down and take advantage of the sea breezes. But being on the water can have its dangers too, whether you're in a boat, kayak or on a paddleboard or jet ski. In the Waterford and East Lyme areas of the state, a Joint Police Marine Patrol Unit helps monitor the local waterways, helping to keep water users safe. I went on the front lines to find out more. So we're out on the Niantic River with Officer Michael Furman and Officer Stephen Rogers from Waterford PD, the Marine Patrol. Michael, what's, what's unique about the Niantic River when it comes to, you know, just boating and, and the work that you have to do? I mean, obviously you've got a lot, of, a lot of boating traffic on the river. You have a lot of marinas. You've got three or four on the Niantic side. You have, a couple, you have a couple here in Waterford, a lot of homes on the river with docks and, you know, boats behind them and say the Niantic River of all the rivers in the area gets used the most recreationally you know more so than the Thames as, as far as the rec- recreational aspect so you know we want to be out here making sure everybody's safe and you know uh, boating accordingly. So what's the main sort of like boating season and just explain to us you know what is the importance of your role you know the Marine Patrol Unit? The Marine Patrol Unit I mean we're available you know 12 months out of the year if you know, we get called out by the Coast Guard or somebody in distress, you know, within the Niantic Bay, Niantic River, you know, off of Waterford, up the up the Thames, you know, wherever we can assist in the area. That That's all year round. But as far as most of our individualized patrols and stuff like that, it would be from Memorial Day to Labor Day. I mean, that's where most people are using their boats and, you know, weather dependent. I mean, this year, for example, Memorial Day was, you know, pretty much a dud with the weather. So... Weather is going to dictate it. I mean, you still have your gorgeous days in the, well into September and October, um, but it seems like once the kids go back to school, you know, boats are being hauled and, you know, docks are being taken out. So, And then your, your responsibilities as a marine patrolling unit, I mean, is it, without making it sound too simplistic, you're just basically the police force on the water. So do you do everything that the police force would do, you know, on, the, on land? That's correct. I mean, it... God forbid there was a, you know, boating accident. We're going to go out. We're going to be the first on scene and intend to it. No different, really, than a motor vehicle accident. Disabled boaters, boaters in distress, you know, whatever really can occur on land, like you said, that, that could happen on the water, we're going to go out and assist. We're also going to partner with other agencies, you know, like the Coast Guard Station in London or the DEP would come out and assist us as well. And in many cases, depending on, you know, like for boating accidents and stuff like that, they may be the ones who actually ultimately t- take over the case. It sounds like a bit of a daft question, but of course, you know, when you break down on land, you know, AAA or somebody comes along and helps you, what happens if you break down on water? 
as long as nobody's in distress, we want to give commercial salvage the first opportunity to, to assist the boater. Um, you have CETO in the area. You have Boat US. Um, we don't want to interfere with their, you know, their their ways of making money. So as long as the person's not distressed, we want to give, you know, give the commercial companies the opportunity first to assist them if they're unable to or unable to afford it or whatever it may be. And you know, we have to step in. You know, we we can assist getting them to the local, you know, to a um, to a haul out or to the local marina, you know, to to get them off the water. And what if there's like a medical emergency? Because accidents happen everywhere. So if somebody has an accident on on a boat, I'm, I'm assuming that you know the call will come out to you, maybe you first, and then then what happens after that? You know, for example, Goshen Fire Department here in, in Waterford, they they also have their own boat. Whether or not they would already be out, or if we were the ones out, and we have to you know be the first on scene to assist. We may you know take that injured person and take them to the again, the nearest boat launch or wherever the ambulance can meet us on shore. But if not, you know, they could come out and assist us as well at sea, and, and, and we take it from there. So, And, uh, I mean, you're the captain of the boat today, and there's always, I understand, two people um, on board. So do also like um, Waterford, and because uh, you do this in collabor- collaboration with East Lyme as well, do, do all officers get a chance to sort of, like be part of the Marine Patrol unit? That's correct. So there's captains and then there's there's crew members. So here in Waterford, we try we try to have once the guys or girls have you know three four years on, we try to and they show interest into it. Depending on their experience, they may come to us with already having a boater's license or captain's license. So you know it, it kind of makes that initial training you know a lot easier for us. If not, we get them up to speed and you know go through some initial training and and you know certify on the boats with us to to be able to go out and and do the patrols or go out, you know, respond to the search and rescue cases or whatnot. Um, that's also, again, like you, you had mentioned with, with East Lime, this boat's actually shared with East Lime. So some of our patrols, we could have an East Lime captain, you know, with a Waterford crew member or vice versa. Or if, you know, that emergency call came in and one of the, one of the certified members is out on the road, you know, they're going to go lights and sirens to the boat, meet up at the boat, and then go out and assist, uh, you know, that, that incident or emergency. One of the things that we were talking about before we started doing the interview is about uh, boat certification. I mean, you can't drive a car on the road unless you've had, you know, quite a bit of training. But it seems that when it comes to boats, that's not quite the same level of training. Is that something that you see as not only a challenge, but maybe something you'd like to see change over time? In the state of Connecticut, they used to have two separate courses for the jet ski operator's license and the boater's license they actually combine them all into to one for the the safe boater's license there's no you know it's not like somebody has to go out and drive a boat for a driver's test like you have to with a car um, a lot of the experience is going to be really learned on that individuals and and you know their willingness to go out and learn whether with somebody who already has more experience with them or or whatnot or um you know just kind of kind of taking it as they go or, you know, they could be somebody, you know, in the marine trades who has a variety of different captain's licenses out there. You know, everything from operating where they can take, you know, six passengers out up to, you know, 60, 80, or if they're running cruise ships or running, you know, ferries. There's a variety of different licenses out there somebody may hold on the water. Those are a lot more advanced than what's expected of just the average boater we're going to, you know, see out here on the Niantic River. It really falls back on that individual's you know, kind of, kind of learning it on their own, or again through somebody to to get them up to speed, if you will. So, as I said, we're traversing the Niantic River today. It's a pretty wide river. 
What sort of vessels do you see or are allowed to use the Niantic River and what sort of individual challenges can they pose as well, not only to themselves but maybe to you know, other boaters, etc.? I mean, on average, you're going to see vessels in the, in the river anywhere from you know, your, your small kayakers and paddleboarders up to, I mean, you could see 60, 70, 80 foot vessels. I mean, those, those larger vessels are really going to be constrained by you know, how much water they're drafting and where they're able to navigate in, in, you know, safely in the channels or outside the channels here. But yeah, I would say on average, you're, you know, you're going to see a lot of the smaller boats as we head north from, from the marinas, you know, like the Dockaminiums and Port Nyanic, which we just passed back here. Most of the vessels you're going to see up in here are, are, the, are the smaller ones and up to, up to about 30 feet with jet skiers mixed in between and, and a lot of, you know, just mainly small boats, plus sailboats and stuff like you see out here. And, I mean, things like kayaking and paddle boarding have become very, very popular. I mean, the paddle boards seem to be getting even more popular. I'm guessing they cause their own unique challenges because they're smaller, you know, people can fall off more le- easily. I mean, you know, what concerns do, do you have for people when they use those or maybe what advice do you have for people who use those? I mean, my advice is on those smaller things, especially always always uh, wearing a life jacket. I mean, it's been proven that, you know, if you fall in the water, that's your best chance of survival is wearing a life jacket. We also stress the importance of we hand out these stickers that, you know, if if the kayak or paddle board is found floating, you know, that the, the person's name and contact information is, is available so we can call them to see, did that kayak or paddle board just, you know, fall off the dock or drift away from shore or you know, was somebody out on it and now they're in the water, we have a search and rescue case. And at that point, you know, the Coast Guard's involved, possible helicopters and all that type of stuff. So, you know, the importance of making sure that those smaller vessels are, you know, properly labeled so we can get a hold of somebody. You know, your your typical vessel has standard, you know, Connecticut reg numbers or whatever whatever state they may, uh, may have and we're able to look up that registration information just like a vehicle to where we could contact the owner and, you know, help through our investigation whereas you know again the smaller ones if we find them adrift they can really um it can really strain the resources and we may put a lot of time into something that was you know there, there was never anybody in danger or whatnot so uh, apart from being a presence you know on the water it's also education i mean you're out there to you know give that little bit of extra education to people that's our main thing i mean people work hard the boating season here obviously in the northeast is short you know, they want to get out, they want to want to enjoy their boats, but we want to make sure they're doing it safely. Again, most of our enforcement, yes, it would be, you know, just, just educating them, making sure they have enough life, life jackets for everybody on board, you know, the proper flares and, you know, safety equipment, you know, and that they're operating safely. You know, obviously, drinking and boating is a main concern with us, too, and the, and the, the things that that could lead to. Our overall goals on the water, yes, is for the making sure everybody's safe, and then if we need to respond for these incidents like we talked about we're there to there to help out you come at this with a unique set of skills because apart from being you know a very highly qualified police officer again we were talking before the interview you're also a reservist for the the coast guard so what got you interested in the whole sort of like maritime thing i mean i've spent my whole life kind of growing up nearby here in niantic have a boat right at the dock which we had just passed back there yeah i mean it's kind of it's in my blood if you will a lot of fishing and a lot, a lot of, a lot of water sports and stuff over the years. So it just kind of, kind of all meshed together to where I am today. 
I mean, it also gives you an incredible amount of, of water-based skills as well, probably more so than many others. Yeah, and, you know, my role here at, at the police department is, you know, to get, get the other people up to speed and get the crew members to the level of knowledge to where now they're running the boat and stuff like that. Let's have a word with uh, Officer Rogers here, Stephen, who's also along today as part of the crew. This is, I believe, your first time sort of like out on patrol. So what got you interested in wanting to be part of the Marine Patrol? So very similar to what Mike said, uh, I grew up around the water. I never had a boat growing up, but I've been around it. It's a great day. You know, it's, it's nice to get out, but it's also nice to educate people and uh, just continue to improve my skills. Because if I am on patrol and I happen to have that one call on the on the water, it's it's nice to be able to be ready for that. Is it also a case of, you know, so like in your own leisure time, uh, I mean, if you're so like on the water, you know, knowing a little bit more about, you know, how to react, how to deal with the challenges that being on the water faces, uh, I'm guessing that's helpful as well. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I, I go out fishing on my kayak every once in a while. So it is, it's good to have both sides of it, knowing the citizen side as well as the patrol side. And ultimately, I mean, you're a young officer, uh, you know, you've got your full career ahead of you. Is this something that maybe you would ultimately look to have as part of, you know, maybe a, a promotional thing or something that you would want to do later in your career? Absolutely. So I have about two, two, two and a half years on the job overall. Like you said earlier, this is my first patrol shift doing this. But absolutely, you know, um, if I could become a captain, that would absolutely help. And then I can pass that along to any newer officer that comes on after me. Do your friends or, or your family or, or just people that you speak to, are they surprised that there is a Marine Patrol unit? Because I don't think people think of the police naturally as being on the water. I mean, we just, I think, probably just think about you being in your cars or, you know, around towns, etc. So do they find that a little bit of a surprise when you say, hey, actually, we have a Marine Patrol? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not something that many people would think that we do, but we have a very large set of skills and... Uh, absolutely you know it's our job is to help people regardless of where you're at and michael getting back to you i mean in all the years that you've done this any particular thing that's like i mean I'm, you've obviously dealt with many many situations over the years but there are other one or two situations that stand out in your mind for you know for any particular reason i mean some of the larger cases we've been involved in you know people end up in the water and you know we're out doing search patterns and and it's a multi-agency thing i mean you have many police departments in the area, fire departments, again, the Coast Guard, DEP involved, state police, you know, all working together to, to resolve the issue. And unfortunately, some of these larger cases, they didn't turn out, you know, turn out in the in the best circumstances. You know, people actually did pass away here, you know, on the sound. Some of the other larger events too, you know, like a recent, the, the recent visit by uh, President Biden at the Coast Guard Academy, you know, we're out, you know, doing security zones and again, working with these other agencies to you know, to assist as necessary. So there's a lot going on out there that we do. You mentioned about search and rescue as well, which again, I think people instantly think that's just a Coast Guard thing, but of course it isn't, is it? No, I mean, within the, the Coast Guard's whole missions and, and stuff have kind of uh, adapt and changed over the years. I mean, if you look at the amount of these other assets, these other government agencies, the local assets available, there's many cases, like for example, if somebody fell in the water in Nyanick Bay, we're, we're mostly, most likely going to be on scene to assist them long before the Coast Guard's there. And that's kind of more what, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing towards it, you know, not only here locally, but throughout the, throughout the U.S. So, you know, we're, we're part of that, that uh, change. When you're out on patrol, I mean, uh, 
clearly you, you know, you've got eyes everywhere, you've got the crew, you know, you're looking at things, you've got technology here. I mean, this boat is bristling with some, like, you know, up-to-date technology to, to assist you. What things are you sort of really sort of like looking for as well, you know, while you're out on, on patrol? Yeah, we talked about the, you know, people uh, operating their boats while drinking, stuff like that. Safe speeds with, you know, within, uh, within the shore wakes of vessels. You know, we don't want a vessel coming up here throwing a four-foot wake and, you know, damaging property. Just general, you know, making our presence known that, you know, to hopefully people are operating safely. And one of the things we're also talking about is speed limits. Again, you know, with, on the river, it does have speed limits, but limited, though. Is that correct? That's correct. So in the channel that we just came out of, vessels got to keep it within six miles an hour. As we get up here outside of the channel few hundred feet off the shore after that people are able to go whatever speed they want unfortunately safely though so that's stuff that we're looking at to to make sure that you know they're not going to be cutting cut in front of one another and they're they're operating according to you know the, the nav rules so we're out today it's a sunday it seems relatively quiet i can see actually in the distance there is like a lone jet ski i mean i'm guessing jet skis and we're not trying to malign people who use jet skis but i'm guessing they can be some of the most challenging like water users because just the the nature of the, the vessel they're on i mean jet skis now go you know well over 70 miles an hour people you know if they if they fall off at that speed they're more likely to to be injured or whatnot you know also they're their distance to stop or if you know if they cut in front of another boat that's going to affect the you know the, the the chance of collision and stuff like that so they they do they do pose kind of a you know a different you know d- different issue here out in the water so one of the other things that you were saying is that covid has created a new sort of generation of of boat owners because it seems that um, that's gone through the roof the applications I don't have the exact numbers for you, but it's you know it was it was made uh, aware to all the marine agencies that the boat registrations in the state of Connecticut have you know whether it was double, triple, but there's a huge, huge increase in the amount of you know new boat registrations. You know from what I'm told from you know like Boats Inc. and Niantic, you can, you know there's boat engines that are not available, boats on order that they you know people have ordered and they can't get. There's there's a huge demand right now. Sounds like with COVID that everybody, you know, wants to get out in the water and, uh, and, and kind of get away from everybody and enjoy the water. So. so it could be a really busy summer. Yeah, that was what was brought up in some meetings that uh, I attended, and um, that's what we're expecting. So, Michael, we're um, just rounding Millstone Nuclear Power Plant. Explain to us the rules about that, because that's changed, and, of course, you have to, you know, patrol that, but there's a, a security, so, like, cordon. So explain to us about that. That's correct. So following 9-11, they, the, the Coast Guard put out a security zone around Millstone. They get a lot of calls about kayakers and you know, people fishing from boats inside that security zone. So we got to go out and you know, make contact with the operators and, and have them move it outside the zone. And how far out is that zone, do you know? I mean, you see, the, you see these white buoys off our bow, so I'm going to say a few hundred feet. Again, they, they're, and we'll get calls from Millstone Security you know, on scene, you know, at the plant itself saying, hey, you know, we got people inside our, our zone. Can you come out and make contact with them? And generally, are people quite understanding when you go up to them and say, you like, you just need to come outside? They are. I mean, it's not like there's, you know, like there's a line coming across these buoys. So, I mean, it's not always clear to, to everybody exactly what's going on there, but they usually move out of the zone without incident. 
but it's just one extra sort of like unique situation here because obviously there aren't nuclear power stations you know that many on the on the shoreline are there correct i mean you know the millstone power stations and you know very important to the town of waterford and you know obviously it's effect on on the sound here so you brought up a really like valid point about people's reliance of course on our smart and our cell phones which is causing its own issues because when people get into trouble and they're on the water you're saying that they're starting to use their cell phones and not the old traditional emergencies like um, channels which like the coast guard would monitor correct so you know originally and it still is channel 16 is the distress channel for the vhf radios for everybody on board but you know a lot of the smaller boats and and you know people not you know marine savvy if they don't have the radio they're going to rely on their cell phones um, so if there is an issue, most of those 911 calls are going to come through the local, you know, dispatch centers, and you know they're able to take their GPS locations to hopefully give us, uh, you know, approximate location of where you know where they're calling from with that with that distress. So it, yes, it's kind of changed from, you know, everything coming through the you know the Coast Guard stations or the Coast Guard sectors, and it's kind of kind of putting more on the local you know dispatch and communication centers to you know take that initial call and then. You know, provide that provide that information to the other agencies, including the Coast Guard. And I suppose the point to make here is, it's that's a dangerous situation just to rely on your cell phone because you could lose service as against, and you know, the battery could die. I mean, we all have these issues on land. Where against, if you had maybe like a, a an actual proper GPS unit which is made specifically for for a boat, that's going to be much more reliable. I think. Correct. I mean, you know, the the smarter boater should have, you know primary means of communication and secondary a lot of boats are going to have two vhf radios and then of course anybody on board most likely is going to have their cell phone with them some of the boats that fish further offshore may even have uh, what they call satellite phones that are going to be able to be used at a much greater distance so yeah it's important to have all those you know ways of contacting somebody if there was an issue and then also you know the the boaters should be making you know making their friends and family well aware of you know where they were headed you know uh and what they were doing you know as far as their uh their plan for the day so if something did happen they would uh you know we would know as you know responding to agencies uh, where to look for them this is an american red cross blood donation alert the red cross is facing a severe blood shortage and is urging eligible donors of all types to give now and help avoid delays in life-saving medical care for patients this summer more donations are needed to replenish the blood supply and help address the extraordinary blood needs of hospitals and patients right now be a hero to a patient in need use the blood donor app visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make an appointment to help save lives. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041 or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. Two Waterford schools will be opening up in-school health clinics in the new school year in September in partnership with the United Family and Community Services, a local healthcare non-profit. 
Danielle Kempesta is an advanced practice registered nurse and heads up UCFS's school-based centres and says they're not there to replace the school nurse or other services, but to add to them. A child might go to the nurse and complain of a sore throat the day that he's at school and the nurse might say, oh, geez, gosh, the back of your throat looks terrible. Mom might need to bring you to the doctor's. But hey, if that student is enrolled in the school-based health center, then they can head right over to us and we can be sort of urgent care or the provider where they can see them right at the school. Jim Sachs is the principal of Clark Lane Middle School, one of the two schools in Waterford who will be getting the new clinics, and says apart from being there for the students, it's also to help out parents as well. Maybe has a parent who's working um, unusual hours, or maybe a single dad or mom, and they're struggling a bit, may not have access to a pediatrician as the number one thing in their lives. So we are hoping that bringing this to the school, give them access to both health care and, med- and mental health care, during the school day, so they would be able to leave their classroom, access this, and then they would return to the classroom, minimal disruption. UCFS already has six other in-school clinics across the region providing both medical care and mental health services to students. The first West Nile virus positive mosquitoes have been reported in the state by the Mosquito Monitoring Program of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Dr. Philip Armstrong is with the station and says they detected the virus earlier than usual in mosquitoes, trapped on June 21st in the city of Milford. What is interesting is that we're seeing the virus emerge a little earlier in the season. Typically, West Nile virus first surfaces in July, early to mid-July. So the third week of June is, is on the early side. Armstrong says West Nile virus-positive mosquitoes have also been detected in nearby New York State and New Jersey and says if we continue to have record-high temperatures throughout summer, it could create ideal conditions for a bad year for the virus across Connecticut. Connecticut residents can get daily updated mosquito information from the station's website at ct.gov forward slash CAES. June 30th marked the 75th anniversary of the formation of the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory at the U.S. subbase in New London. And although much of their research work is for the U.S. submarine force, they have, over the years, helped discover other things that impact all of our lives, as Dr. David Fothergill, the lab's science director, explains. We were instrumental in providing some of the basic research to show that the international colour orange for optimised visibility during air-sea rescues was the best colour to to wear to be seen and picked up. The lab was also responsible for the creation of the first standardised colour vision test for military personnel back in 1942. It also undertook sleep and performance research in submariners when the US Navy changed to an 18-hour workday on their nuclear submarines. A new year-long exhibit of the lab's work can be seen at the Submarine Force Museum in Groton, and you can find out more about the organisation at their website by searching for Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory. In the day this week, problems with submarine parts failing faster than predicted could lead to more work for private shipyards such as Electric Boat. Recently, U.S. Navy officials informed the Senate Armed Services Committee that parts on their 48 Virginia-class fast-attack submarines have been failing more quickly than predicted, according to media reports. Some of those parts had been expected to last the lifetime of the submarine. Workers in public Navy yards have had to borrow parts from submarines arriving for maintenance, which is causing delays in repairing them, according to the Navy. The problems, though, could actually benefit private yards like Electric Boat because the Navy yards cannot keep up with the work, said Congressman Joe Courtney. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, as recreational use of marijuana became legal on July 1st, 
Brian Langevin, co-owner of Green Valley Glass in Putnam and Colchester, said there's been movement in glass smoking supplies. There was initial shock to the public, but it's levelled out a bit, Langevin said. In Connecticut, recreational marijuana is now legal for people 21 and older, with retail sales coming in 2022 and personal use growing in 2023. While some businesses, such as hemp growers and those selling CBD and smoking supplies, are considering getting into recreational marijuana, they see at least some potential for their current products. In the Middletown Press, an attorney representing a parental rights nonprofit and families of University of Connecticut students is threatening a lawsuit if the school doesn't lift its COVID-19 vaccination requirement. Attorney Ryan P. McLean announced the intention to bring legal action against the school if the policy is not changed in a letter to outgoing University President Thomas Katsoulis and interim University President Andrew Aguinobi. In the June 24th letter, McLean said he represents the Family Freedom Endeavour and dozens of UConn students and their families, as well as families of students at other schools across New England and the US. He urged the university to withdraw its mandate for all students to be vaccinated, citing the lack of US Food and Drug Administration approval. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>